Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. After years of fearing the arrival of chronic wasting disease in Idaho, the state detected the disease in two mule deer in October. We discussed how that might affect hunting and policy in years to come. I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, producer Ruth Brown sits down with Representative Brent Crane to discuss changes to House ethics rules after a contentious year of ethics hearings at the Idaho Legislature. Then, Idaho Fish and Game Director Ed Shriver joins me to discuss the discovery of chronic wasting disease in Idaho and how it may affect policy in coming years. But first, this week, the state surpassed 4,000 recorded deaths due to COVID-19. The state hit 3,000 deaths on September 28th, meaning the state recorded 1,000 additional COVID deaths in just 72 days. In comparison, it took 263 days for Idaho to reach its first 1,000 deaths. We have much more on the Idaho Reports blog. You'll find the link at idahoptv.org slash idahoreports. Also this week, a federal judge has blocked a Biden administration COVID-19 vaccine mandate for federal contractors. Since Idaho universities receive $89 million in federal grants, the executive order may have applied to employees at the universities and students who work for the universities. The House Ethics Committee has had a busy year with hearings for Representative Priscilla Giddings and former Representative Aaron Von Ellinger. The House formally censured Giddings last month and Von Ellinger resigned in May after the Ethics Committee recommended suspension. Von Ellinger later was charged with two felony crimes to which he's pleaded not guilty. This week, the Ethics Committee met to discuss potential rule changes. Ruth Brown sat down with Representative Brent Crane to discuss his views on how the proceedings went and some of the proposed changes lawmakers discussed. Representative Crane, thank you for joining me today. You're welcome, pleasure to be here, Ruth. So I wanna talk about House Rule 45. House Rule 45 establishes the rules for the Committee on Ethics and House Policy. Uh, 2021 was an exceptional year for the Ethics Committee. You faced uh, two public hearings, uh, one for Representative Giddings and one for former Representative Von Ellinger after complaints were filed about those individuals. On Monday, the committee met to review some of the rules um, and a variety of um, suggestions were made about how to improve the process or maybe change the process. Because 2021 was an abnormal year for the Ethics Committee, what did you learn about the rule and are there any changes, uh, amendments that need to be made? Well, it was my first year to serve on the Ethics Committee, so it was all new. And talking to members that have previously served, this was uncharted territory that the Ethics Committee had to deal with in uh, the legislative session of 2021. Um, I don't recall in my 15 years there ever being two public hearings in the same session. Um, public hearings are very uncommon. And most of these issues are dealt with in the private phase that is built into House Rule 45. But um, there, was, there was, as we worked our way through the Von Ellinger case as well as the Giddings case, there, there was some issues that arose and we're like, you know what, 
that probably should be fixed. There was obviously a lot of critique uh, on the committee's work in both of those cases, people that were, were upset, and so they were you know, voicing their frustration. Uh, some of their critique was founded. It's things that, hey, obviously need to be fixed. Um, a lot of it was unfounded. And so you have to be able to separate those two and shut out all the noise and say, okay, what are legitimate complaints? What is a real problem with Rule 45 that needs to be fixed? And I'll give you an example. Due process. We had Representative Giddings decried over and over that, that the committee did not give due process in the Von Ellinger case. And if you read House Rule 45, it says that we're supposed to release the complaint. We followed House Rule 45 to the letter of the law, or the letter of the rule in this case, and we released only the complaint. Her concern was, is that due process was not served and that we did not release his response to the complaint. And so, you know what, is it a fair critique? Absolutely, that's a fair critique and that's something that we are gonna change. So we decided we'll release the complaint, we'll release the response and any documents that go with it will all be public at that point and help satisfy that. Um, would it have changed the outcome of that case? Absolutely not. But is, this, is it a tweak that could be made in the rule? Certainly, and the committee's willing to do that. But there is no wholesale changes that need to be made to the rule. Uh, is it clunky? Yeah. Does it work? Yes. And, and, and we, we saw it work in both cases. On Monday and Tuesday, uh, when the committee met, there was a lot of discussion about transparency. What do you see as the value of transparency when reviewing a complaint made against a lawmaker? So we're elected officials, and um, we are elected to serve the people of our legislative district. However, we don't get to choose who comes to this legislative process. The voters do that. And we have to, as I say, we don't choose who comes here, we work with who comes here. And sometimes there are individuals that have uh, issues that arise inside the legislative process. Um, most of the time, those, those ethical issues are resolved in the private process. And so, I feel like that the current process that we have in place works very well. There's a di disciplinary action that can take place inside that private process. Most of them, uh, in fact, in my 15 years, none of them have risen to the level of Representative Von Ellinger's issue, ethical issue. Um, so they're dealt with in that, in that private manner and, and that works really well. However, this year, we had some that, that went further and went into the, the public aspect of it. And so there was this, this idea that maybe everything should be put into a private process and then you put a report out there and members vote on that, that uh, report. Well, it's my belief when you're dealing with someone's reputation and you are when you're dealing with the Ethics Committee, and the Ethics Committee is very well aware of that, the minute it goes public, it's now their reputation at stake that there probably is a portion of this that needs to be handled in a public manner. Um, as many conspiracy theories that were floating around the whole ethics process in the Von Ellinger case and in the Giddings case, I think it would only heighten those conspiracy theories if you did not have full transparency. And so um, in, in the case of Giddings, for example, we gave her the option to meet privately and um, I am confident that had we met privately, most of those issues would have been resolved in a private manner and it never would have gone to the public face. She chose not to exercise that option and I understand her reason for not exercising that option. So it forced the committee then again to go into public face. But there's value in the public face. The, the private phase is primarily investigatory. You're doing your research, here's the complaint, you're looking at the validity of the complaint, you're interviewing witnesses. That's primarily what it is. And then you come to a conclusion, and, and again, most of them are resolved in that phase. However, 
I believe that that lawmaker needs to have the ability to have a full public display and let the public weigh in. Um, I have heard from members of the public in regards to the Von Ellinger case as well as the Giddings case, what they liked or what they didn't like. And then once that concludes, then it goes to the floor. And there was stuff learned in the Von Ellinger case that was vastly different than what we were told in private. And had it all been in private, the outcome of that case may have been significantly different. And so that's the concern that I have, is that if it's all shrouded in secrecy and all cloaked in, in, in privacy and secrecy, it gives, gives cause for suspicion that something is going on or it's the good old boys club or it's these guys are trying to protect their own. They're not making sure that we have an, an honest and ethical body. And the Idaho House of Representatives, uh, we wanna make sure we're doing things that are transparent, that it's open, that it's honest and people can see what's going on. You mentioned something that I wanted to circle back to. Uh, Representative Giddings did choose not to participate in the preliminary investigation, the part of the phase that would be private. Do you think lawmakers should be required to participate in that initial investigation if a complaint is filed? I do. You do? Absolutely I do. Um, there is, whether you like it or not, it's a colleague to colleague conversation and it can be a very difficult conversation and you can, in private, you can uh, scold a member and in a way that they need to be scolded or bring their attention to something. Sometimes these are issues that are, are their blind spots. People don't see that the problem is, exists. And when you're able to sit down and, and have a dialogue, similar to what we're having here, it, they're very informal. Um, it, there is extreme benefit. Her concern, however, is she saw how I took some of the statements that Representative Von Eller made in that private hearing and referenced them in the public hearing because they were conflicting. Well, you know what? You were sworn under oath in, in the private hearing to tell the truth, and you were sworn under oath in public to tell the truth. And here I am as a, as a potential juror trying to make a decision, but I've got two different instances. Absolutely, I'm gonna refer to that reference that was made in private. Tell me, Representative, so what is the case here? And I think that that's fair and that's valid, but that caused her concern. Are they gonna use words against me? Uh, I believe her stuff would have been resolved in, in, in the private space if she come forward, so therefore I believe members should. Um, come and you know hear what the committee has to say and getting there there's valuable information that happens the other thing in the in the von ellinger case he switched attorneys so we went through uh you know the interview with with uh, scott mckay and then he switched and went with david Leroy. so we went back through the interview process again there was information that was gleaned uh in the, in that private phase that was slightly different and so it was it was important so initially the rule was created to deal with things such as maybe a lawmaker who has a conflict of interest or a lawmaker who could be, um, I guess, getting financial gain from a piece of legislation. You address those sorts of things. What made Aaron Von Ellinger's case different is there were allegations of sexual assault and potential workplace sexual harassment. Those are instances that involve victims. Was the rule designed to I guess address victim treatment and how, how did the committee move forward with that? How should they move forward with that in the future? So we get built into the rule is the ability for us to establish our own rules as to how we want to proceed. And so there is flexibility built into the rule. I don't know that, um, I think it was Representative Wood and Representative Luker that actually crafted kind of the, um, the father, so to speak, of House Rule uh, 45. And uh, I don't think that they envisioned a Representative Von Elmer type situation. That, that is extremely unique. However, we did have enough, enough flexibility because we could flesh out our own rules that we could make it work. 
and we worked with his attorney, uh, Edward Dendinger. We worked with him and said, hey, here's the rules uh, that we're going to use. He said, no, I would like to, I want to push back respectfully and say I would like you to do this. So we worked back and forth and we were able to make it work. With respect to uh, witnesses, that was one of the things that we talked about is, hey, we're going to have a witness appear, but we want to try to also maintain her privacy and do that to the best of our ability. We provided, you know, a screen for her, a place where she could sit down, where she could, you know, uh, not have to be exposed to the public uh, in that regard. We also provided a private entrance and exit for her. Um, I don't know why she chose to go right out of that hallway instead of going left to the exit that was provided and instructed for her to go. I, I can't answer that question, why that happened, but it did happen. But the committee very clearly made sure that her privacy was protected. Again, we can't dictate and say you absolutely have to go out that door, um, but we provided it for her and for her, her folks, they knew that that was the, the private exit to get her out. It's unfortunate she didn't, uh, she didn't turn left, she turned right. And um, it's unfortunate because then that whole debacle that came out of that um, really kind of caused some, some a public outcry that really um, we did everything that we could to try to protect her. And, and I felt like that we were trying, but she, she turned the wrong way. And so it's unfortunate. Idaho Reports reached out to Annie Hightower, who represented Jane Doe during the May ethics hearing and asked about the private exit Representative Crane mentioned. Hightower said the committee didn't offer them a private exit until the morning of the hearing. And in the aftermath of the testimony, Jane Doe panicked and went into the hall. To see the full interview with Representative Crane, visit Idaho Reports YouTube channel or listen to this week's Idaho Reports podcast. You'll find both those links at idahoptv.org slash Idaho Reports. Joining me to discuss the challenges facing managing Idaho's deer population is Idaho Fish and Game Director Ed Schriever. Thank you so much for joining me today. We know that um, the state detected chronic wasting disease in two Idaho mule deer in October. Can you give me a rundown of what this disease is and how it affects the animals? Certainly, thanks. And thanks for the opportunity. Uh, uh, the public's very concerned about the detection of CWD. Let me first start with what it's not, because we've had a significant disease issue in white-tailed deer in north central Idaho this year and that is uh, epizootic hemorrhagic disease. And that is a very acute disease. It's a virus, it's carried by gnats. Uh, we've had it numerous times. This is the second worst mortality we've experienced. Literally thousands of deer, white-tailed deer, have died as a result of this very acute. They hemorrhage inside their lungs. If they get it, many of them die, some recover but they die very quickly, within a period of a couple weeks. And we've been working in those communities to dispose of many, many, many dead deer. There are many more in the hinterlands that, that uh, are, they just die and, and people are running into them. So that is a significant issue and that has had a significant effect on uh, white-tailed deer numbers in the Kuski-Kamii Grangeville area but that is not CWD, and CWD is not killing thousands of deer in Idaho, and I think it's important that the public be able to recognize the differences. Um, EHD is having a population level effect in the localized areas where is it occurring. CWD, on the other hand, is a very chronic long-term disease, and it, it 
is not a virus, it's not a bacteria, it's a prion disease, and it causes proteins in the central nervous system in the brain to fold. It literally takes years for it to manifest itself in an animal such that they start to show clinical symptoms. Lethargy, they, their head droops, they slobber, they stagger. Um, many, many deer in the wild die before they actually die. If, if you held these deer in, in a pen someplace, they would all die of this disease. But when you're living in the wild and you're off your game and you're, you know, you're not feeding well, you might more likely die of, of malnutrition before you actually would die of the chronic wasting disease itself. But it, we do not have CWD manifesting itself as a disease. We have detected it in two animals. It's alarming. We never had it before. Um, so we're, we're right now trying to figure out to what extent we do have it. We literally found the needle in the haystack and now we want to know. Yeah, and I'm curious because, you know, you have one disease that has burned hot and fast and killed hundreds, you know, more than a thousand deer, yes. thousands of deer in the Idaho County area. Um, that's a disease that moves very, very quickly through a population until it doesn't have any more deer, any more bodies to run through. CWD, from what I understand, has a very long incubation period. And one thing that I've learned from covering COVID for almost two years now is just because you haven't detected it doesn't mean it's not there. So you found this needle in the haystack. Is it possible that it's more widespread outside of that, right. of that Idaho County area in which you found it? So anything's possible, but I'm gonna say it's not probable. So there's a couple ways that CWD gets spread. Um, one is by an infected animal who moves from point A to point B and takes the disease with them. Um, another way is through human involvement in one way or another, either moving infected animals that are wild or domestic, domestic deer farm, something like that, or a hunter goes to a state with CWD, harvests an animal, brings that animal back, butchers it, and then disposes of the spine and the brain, and those prions then are in the soil and they're ready to be taken up by other animals. So um, it, it can spread a multitude of ways. We are a bit surprised to find our first positive sample in Unit 14 on the west side of the state when we know we have it to the south in Utah and to the east in Wyoming and Montana. So and this it's is kind of- been in Wyoming a, and Montana for a number of years well, now. Well, it's been in Wyoming for decades. It's, mm -hmm. it's relatively newly discovered in Montana. So, you know, I, I'm thinking about where you found it, and for people who don't know, Unit 14 is in Idaho County, kind of between that New Meadows White Bird area, right? So between Riggins and Grangeville. Got it, and so y you talked about hunters going to these states in which it's been detected already, potentially bringing it back. Is there any risk to humans? Is there any risk to the hunters who are harvesting these animals? Yeah, first, the commission and the legislature passed some rules uh, three years ago that does not allow the importation of deer, whole deer from infected states. You, you can bring bone meat back and 
So we, we're trying to deal with the risk of the people factor of CWD with rules and regulations. So your question, does it present a risk to people, right? Um, I think for all intents and purposes, um, it, people can't get CWD. And uh, there are similar types of diseases that mad affect- Mad cow disease. Mad cow disease is the one that affects cows. Mm -hmm. But CWD in deer cannot be transmitted to cattle and turn into mad cow disease. It is unique to the cervid family. Deer, white-tailed deer, mule deer, elk, um, are, and moose are the species in this state that are susceptible to CWD. With that Scrapie is the same disease in sheep. They're different diseases and they're not transmittable or transferable. And the, the human version, Jakob Crutchfeld, is not CWD. There is some concern. We are not public health people at Fish and Game. There is concern by uh, the CDC that, that provide instructions to people, if you kill a deer and it tests positive, you probably shouldn't eat the meat. But that is a, that's a CDC recommendation, not an Idaho Fish and Game recommendation. Should people eat the meat if a test is pending? I, I think, so when we respond and we now have a CWD positive and we are defining a CWD management zone, our recommendation is if you kill a deer in that CWD management zone that you can butcher it and you can cut it and you can wrap it and you can put it in your freezer, but we probably would recommend you wait until the result of the test from that animal come back to make a decision on what you're gonna do with the meat. Now let's talk about that management plan and the sure. surveillance hunts for a little bit. And so for, um, for this zone, what are you doing to see how prevalent this disease might be? Exactly. So after, <clears throat> there's, there's a lot of folks who are wondering what we're doing, and I would just point you to idfg.idaho backslash CWD, and you can go to our CWD response plan that we've had for a decade. We've been tabletopping it with other agencies. What do you do when you find it? So <clears throat> we know we have it in two deer we immediately started collecting more samples. We opened up check stations. We had our employees collecting all the samples we could from deer and elk that were being harvested in open seasons. And we literally got hundreds of additional samples. But we wanna know, is it just this one place in Unit 14? So we established a surveillance area that is larger. It includes the south half of Unit 11A, some of unit 13, some of unit 18, some of unit 23. We just drew a bigger circle. And we know we need minimum sample sizes from does and bucks of both whitetail and mule deer. And we subtracted those animals that came from open hunting seasons from what we need in the sample. And we determined how many more we need to get. And we established these surveillance hunts to use hunters as the method to collect the samples. You can only sample for CWD from dead animals. There is no test to swab a, up the nose or anything else to see if a living animal is CWD positive. So unfortunately, you need a dead animal to remove the lymph node and test for it. So when 
when hunters, uh, you know, bring an animal, well, le let's start at the beginning. If a hunter goes to that surveillance area, they harvest a deer, what do they do? So all of these hunts have very specific instructions. When we issued these tags, they could only be bought at a fish and game office so that we could make sure you had the complete set of instructions on what you were to do. You are not to bring the whole deer out. You, you take the meat off, but you bring us the head. And we will sample the lymph nodes from the head. We have check stations set up in the field, or you can bring it to a regional office and we will take the head. If it's a buck deer, we'll give you the antlers after we bleach the skull. And then we will dispose of the head properly. But you leave the spine where you harvested the animal. Very specific instructions, mandatory. Every deer taken in these surveillance hunts must be brought in so we can take a sample from it. That's the entire purpose of the hunt. So that lymph node extract, that free lymph node extraction happens in the field. Does the state have the ability to test in Idaho or are you sending those samples elsewhere? We are sending those samples to Colorado State University, one of the biggest labs. Uh, the positive samples that we got back, we sent also to Ames, Iowa to have a, a confirmatory test, but those are being done. There is a lag time. Uh, they do a lot of testing. So we have heard back. So. We already have looked at over 330 samples from the surveillance area after the two positives. I think we have about 68 samples pending and obviously we'll have more samples coming in as a result of these hunts. So 300 some additional samples in the surveillance area, all negative. But this will help us determine the commission has established the CWD management zone in unit 14 and 15 and that means if, if in the future you kill a deer there on an open hunt, you can't take the head out, you can't take the spine out. Is that the appropriate area to manage that? So that's what this surveillance will help us determine. And, and it will provide the information for the next discussion about what will we do to manage you can't get rid of it, but you manage the risk of spread and you manage the prevalence on the landscape. And those will be discussions based on the information we gather that the commission will have with the public. That's not a predetermined outcome. When we're talking about the Fish and Game Commission having those discussions with the public, can you give us an idea of what some of those policy decisions or changes might be for long-term management and how might they interface with the local jurisdictions? So it's generally accepted. It's different. So in Wyoming, they have deer populations that have prevalence in excess of 25% of the population is walking around with CWD you might want to manage for a low prevalence. And to do that, it's a certain path where you really put high harvest rates on these deer populations and, the, and you really limit you know, the number of old animals in the population. That's a discussion you need to have because you will lower the deer population as a result of that management action to reduce the risk that it spreads elsewhere. And that's a choice and people need to be engaged in the discussion about that choice. We have about half a minute left <laughs> as we're approaching um, those discussions. Are you confident that Idaho's hunting 
industry is going to be healthy moving forward with these challenges and these diseases that are present? Yes, I, I, this CWD would take a long time to manifest itself at a population scale. It's about the risk and it's about having people informed, but this we are not going to be losing thousands and thousands of animals in the near term. We're gonna have to leave it there. Thank yeah. you so much and thanks for watching. We'll see you next week. presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.